Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Art Gensler, founder of Gensler, the architecture, planning, design, and consulting firm, which has grown from one office with three people here in San Francisco in 1965 to a global business with over 6,000 people and 48 offices around the world. Art and I are joined by Ricky Nishimura, the firm's director of urban strategies and a young leader in the firm. I wanted to hear Art's story, that of the founder of the sage and the business builder, but I also wanted to hear from someone of today's generation about the business, the opportunities, and the challenges that we're facing in today's ever-evolving and challenging urban environments. By the way, if you want to explore Art's thinking on business more deeply, I invite you to check out his book, Art's Principles, 50 Years of Hard-Learned Lessons in Building a World-Class Professional Services Firm. This is the fourth Leading Voices episode from an architecture designer. In season one, we had Andres Dewani, one of the founders of New Urbanism, Phil Freelon, a well-known African-American designer of public spaces, most notably the still-new National Museum of African-American History in Washington, D.C., in a place you kind of can't get a reservation, and also Janet Marie Smith, the designer of baseball stadiums. Each of these episodes follows a very different theme around the business. This discussion with Art and Ricky is all about building a global corporate model, totally different than the others, each of whom have pursued closer to the architect as artist and designer more than the company builder. I want to also thank our sponsor, JLL, a leading professional services firm that is reimagining the world of real estate by creating rewarding opportunities in amazing spaces around the globe so that people can achieve their ambitions. We'll be joined mid-episode by Carlos Serra, a managing director with JLL, who will have observations on the discussion with Art. And for more information on JLL, visit us.jll.com slash voices. We appreciate your listening in on the podcast. A favor. If you like the podcast, tell your friends about it. If they nod at you, that they'll get around to it, just grab their phone, go to their podcast app, and subscribe to Leading Voices for them and get them started on your favorite episode. I manhandle people's phones with this purpose all the time and invite you to join me in this aggressive act. Go for it, and thanks again for listening in. Enjoy the episode. This is a special episode for a bunch of reasons. Um, first, we're speaking with a true legend and pioneer in the real estate world, Art Gensler, who grew a company from three employees in 1965 to an institution that's one of the leading architecture and consulting businesses globally. And I'm going to be very curious to talk to you about what that global firm means versus an architecture firm as we, as we think about it. And we're also joined by Ricky Nishimura, who's the director for Urban Strategies for Gensler. Um, Ricky and I know each other through the Urban Land Institute, and Ricky was recognized by ULI as one of the 40 under 40 in 2016. So age-wise, we're talking to two generations in the business, but generations separated by a couple of generations in between. So this will be a really interesting conversation. We'll focus mostly with art and, and your vision and how you grew and created the firm, but we'll also talk about current events and current aspects and elements of the business in which both of you get to share your ideas. So I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to talk with you. Um, I always start at the beginning with someone's career, but I love your elevator speech on what this firm is and what it's become so that our listeners who don't know you well know what it is we're talking about. I started as an architect uh, training college. Um, first 
when we started the Gensler firm in 1965, I got a chance to do tenant interiors in an office building. And for years, we did, were known as the interiors firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got attached and had an opportunity to work with global firms who really were powerful and interesting people working with their interiors. And as we got to know the developers and building owners, uh, they started to ask us to do architectural projects for them. And so we really morphed into a, a U.S. international firm, uh-huh. mostly U.S. firm, because these were people that had offices in various locations. It turned out that they also had offices internationally and they wanted help. And we've sort of taken an attitude that's different than most firms. We don't have a style. We do large projects and small projects. We're totally client-focused, and we're committed to supporting our clients, and we're in the service business. Uh We service using the power of design. And so that has given us a chance to go internationally with many of these clients. And so we've never bought a firm and don't anticipate it. We're grown to 6,000 people now in 48 offices around the world. I think uh, 16 out of the U.S. and the rest in the U.S. And we're we're a firm now not just as an interior firm or an architecture firm, we're a design firm. And that has given us an opportunity to expand our services. We're not an engineering firm. We're not a contractor. We're, we're, we don't buy furniture or do things, but we're a design firm using design as that powerful tool to make the world a better place. Uh-huh. And design's not just as I think about buildings, but design can be parts of cities. So planning, design, thinking about some of the issues that we face in real estate more generally. Very much so. It's a, it's from business planning about your real estate all the way to physical planning of urban spaces and urban planning projects. So we're we're in all of those areas and have expertise uh, like Ricky's says in urban planning and and uh, land planning. Those are very important parts of the program that we offer. We're I think in like 35 practice areas. Uh-huh. Each one with really top experts in that group, but all working a little differently than most firms. We all work as one big firm, one big family. And that allows us to move work to where it's best, not who gets the work, kills the work, eats the work. We don't believe in that. We believe in one big family, so we share everything. So where the work gets done is not, you don't worry about getting credit, you worry about getting the work done properly. And responding to the client's needs properly. And so we have this integrated effort where we bundle these practice areas together in different ways for different clients and do work in different offices and different locations, depending upon where the best talent is, where the available talent is, and where it most appropriately be done. So that's the context for where this business has come to. Let's start with how you got there and start with kind of your story and how you chose design as a career and then up to the founding of the firm. But just talk a little bit about what got you interested in this business as a young person. Well, I've, since I'm five years old, I've always wanted to be an architect. And I, to this day, have no right reason why I wanted that. But I like to build with 
erector sets and Lincoln Logs, no I remember Lego that. blocks, but uh, they liked the architecture. I'm not a good draftsman or an artist, um, but I can visualize things very, very well, and I can communicate that vision to people mm-hmm. and see things. So I think I'm a very strong planner and understand how things plan, and I'm a good listener, and I remember everything like an elephant. And so I've been able to share with clients and with our people mm-hmm. these new ideas. And so I started out, like all architects, working and trying to get a job in California after I got out of the service. And I couldn't get a job out here. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to New York and worked for one firm that Shreve Lyman Harmon, who did the Empire State Building, it was way before I was there, but right. I worked on one project checking shop drawings for a whole year. So it wasn't very exciting. Uh-huh. But I learned a lot. And I got a chance to go overseas and work in the West Indies for a British firm. I worked as a, in a different system. And one of the experiences that you learn in working for a firm like British people is that they just do things differently than we do. And what you, you know, at first I kept saying, you don't do it right. This is the way you're supposed to do it. I'd been out of school a year and a half, so I knew everything. <laughs> and course. these people have been in business for a long time and kind of shut me up. But what I learned is that there's not just one way to do something. And it's been very helpful in my career to learn that sometimes you get blocked and you can step back and go around and do something in an entirely different way to get to the solution Uh or the result that you're looking for. Was the British firm, was the difference about how they solved a design problem or was the difference how, as a business, they approached the work? Well, partly both. Uh, they, they, they They package the drawings totally different and they deal... The relationship with the contractor is totally different. Uh Um, And when you come out of college in the UK, you're an architect. Here we have to be an apprentice at least for three years and then take a licensing Mm -hmm. exam. So I was considered an architect in the West Indies where I was and was um, running projects not knowing what I was doing, but I had a chance to do them very early in my career. So that got me started. I finally, through a series of circumstances, Jamaica became an independent country. They said, this is a black country, you're white, you're out. So I got reverse discrimination, I guess, mm-hmm. or I don't know how you call it. Right. But, but I, I left with my family. I had three kids by the time I left there. And uh, so I came back to the States, got a chance through some strange meetings with people to work in San Francisco. I came out here to work, and uh, unfortunately the guy was a nice to person, good designer, terrible businessman. I didn't realize how bad and he wasn't sending out bills because he didn't think bills were really nice and I never have gotten that. Doesn't work very well. I always tell people, my wife always told me you know that richer or poorer thing in the marriage vows? I didn't marry you for the poorer part. (laughs) And so with three kids now going on four, I needed uh, uh, to, to make money and I don't, I have a belief that People value what they pay for and don't value what they get for free. Totally true. And so I am not embarrassed about charging fees, good quality fees to do the work properly. That's what we built this firm on is that attitude. Uh And is that when you founded the firm? Yeah. What year was that and how old were you? 65, I was 30. You were 30. I'm now 50, 80, I'm now 83, so it's been 53 years. Congratulations. We've been at it a long time. So though that got... Um, I came out, I worked for this gentleman, I left, I went over to Worcester Bernard and Emmons, 
a really well-known firm at the time in San Francisco. They were put in charge of designing the BART system mm-hmm. for the architecture. Actually, just Don Emmons, very weird arrangement. And <clears throat> they had 13 architects doing 39 stations, but they had no what we would today call architectural graphic standards for how wide is it platform, how long is it, how high is it, how's advertising, how's restrooms, how, everything. And so my boss unfortunately died and I ended up at about 27 years old setting up the standards for the Hobart system and uh, with a team of people. And when that finished, um, a friend of mine who I went to college with as an architect was working on the Golden Gateway project and had told his client he thought they were the terrible client. They said, okay, smartass, you be the client. And they hired him, and he hired me to do the tenant work in the alcohol building, and we did it over a beer one Friday night, and I said, I'll try it, and if I can make it work, I'll do it. I don't even know what it is, but I assume I could do it. And uh, if it works, pay me every two weeks because I don't have any cash because we started with 200 bucks in the bank. And um, I hired one draftsman. My wife was the secretary, the office manager, and the, um, the window washer, and the clerk, right. and the bookkeeper. And uh, I designed and marketed, and draftsman drew the drawings up, and we started in business. And here we are today, uh, a, a billion-dollar business. So let's go back for a minute, because I'm curious. So you're 27 years old. You're working on the project to design... All of the stations for the BART system. The standards, not the, the standards. stations, the standards, the guidelines. Of no. which there were none. None. So big responsibility in an early age. Very big. And had anyone figured, had anyone designed a total system before like that? No. The last thing that had been designed was in the 30s, the New York subway system. Nothing had been built since before the Second World War. So we kind of invented it as we went along. Uh-huh. Any great things that you learned and figured out in doing that project? Oh, I think a lot. I think that one is, you know, you can not compromise design by setting strong standards and everything doesn't end up looking exactly this alike and being exactly alike. You you work with strong standards. Uh, i just tell one side funny story that well, one of the big things that are restrooms and rapid transit systems there huge problems for the operators, perversion, filth. Everything. Everything's wrong with our restroom. So I was with the chief engineer one day deciding where we're going to have the restrooms and the the stations and how many and all that. And he said, all right, we're just not going to have any. And I said, well, people have biological needs, and I don't know how you can have, you know, 5,000 people on a train or something coming across the bay, and it's hung up for 20 minutes, and then it finally gets into a station. You're going to need a restroom for people to use. And he said, we're just not going to have any. And we, we said, you know, well, maybe we'll give one that is accessible, a one-holer that is accessible by the station agent from his ticket booth um, and his oversight booth to let somebody in, it'll be locked. And so that night I was getting on the ferry boat, which I used to commute to Tiburon, and right. he was the chief engineer, and he lived in Tiburon. And I saw this man running down the gangplank in front of me, and I looked, and it was the chief engineer, and I just could see his back. And he ran up, and there were three one-holers on the tiny ferry. <laughs> and he grabbed the door to one that was locked, and he grabbed the door to the other that was locked, and he grabbed the door to the third one that was locked, and he's standing there going, 
oh my God, what am I going to do? And he turns, and there I'm saying, you son of a bitch, <laughs> we're only going to have one for the whole each station in the park, which is where they ended up, believe it or they not. They ended up with that, even though you had that conflict. Yeah, even though experience. I had that conflict. And, but, but on the whole, we came up with pretty good solutions, I think. It certainly stood the test of time pretty well. Uh, absolutely. Um, okay, so you start your firm. And it's an interior design firm. So how did that then evolve to more broader well, than interior design? Well, I mean, we, we did a very good job for um, the building, the alcohol building. We was pre-leased it and got the tenants to agree to move in, and everybody was happy. And I was a pretty good salesman, and I was a pretty good planner, and people were happy. And Cushman and Wakemill came along, and... They bought a firm called Buckby Thorne in San Francisco, and they got the leasing of the Bank of America World Headquarters building. And so they came and interviewed me, and I got that job. And um, maybe we had 15 people at the time, something mm-hmm. like that, maybe 20. And um, we were doing, and we did, uh, we did one house. That's we only done four houses in 53 years. We're not big on houses, but um, no, we we uh, uh, we started very slowly, but. Every time we'd get other opportunities, and there were a number of great uh, developers who, through tenants, um, we got to meet. They uh-huh. couldn't go in the alcohol building time-wise or go into the Bank of America, and they went other places. So we got to meet developers and business people around the globe. And they kept saying, well, can't you do the whole thing, or can't you do more of it, or can't you consult on on the interiors and help us make sure our buildings are better. So all of a sudden I became an expert on consulting on buildings and making sure that they were very efficient from a leasing and rentable point of view. Right. And a lot of uh, space got measured properly because buildings are very tricky to measure. And we actually now have a very large group in La Crosse, Wisconsin that does nothing it measures the area of a building, believe it or not, I for landlords. It. But it's a it's a big business for us because we have the database on almost every building in America and some in the world. And so huge portfolios of clients because they don't really know what they own and they don't know who's in it. But that's a, sort of an after thing that came along much later. So I started doing that and, and then we, people, they said, well, we wanted you to interview somebody in Denver. And, and then at the same time, I got a call from somebody in, in Houston about Pennzoil and could I, would I be interested in doing a 600,000 square foot building? I've been doing 20 and 15 and 10. And this is still all interior? All interior. Okay. And, and uh, uh, Philip Johnson was designing a building and Pennzoil was going to move into it. And there was a gentleman named Jerry Hines, very famous he's, now. but He's uh, been on the podcast. Uh, uh, very f- and, uh, and so we worked with him and I negotiated the Pennzoil with a broker, the, the arrangements that were made in the lease. And we did that, and so we opened an office there, and we opened an office in Denver, to do, first to Denver, uh-huh. bank there. I told the people, go there, do the project well. Always sent somebody from here, didn't hire anybody. And it wasn't familiar with Gensler until we got somebody established there, and then we brought local people in. Um, but... Uh, started doing, and people said, well, can, why don't you do the whole damn building? And we said, well, you haven't asked us before, and uh-huh. so now you are, and we're doing it. So now about 50% of our revenue is basic architecture, and 50% is interiors, branding, graphics, uh, product design, consulting. Uh-huh. 
two comments. When, when did it get to the point where you were running a business, not an architecture firm? I or, think I always thought it was a business. I, I Talk uh, about that. Well, when we got to about 15 or 18 people, we were down in the Hearst Building and on Corner Market and 3rd Street. And I was seeing that, you know, we had to get bills out and contracts signed and all sorts of things done. And I, I had no business training. I have only an architecture, Bachelor of Architecture degree, five-year program. And so I was, I saw an ad came of uh, continuing education University of California has. And so I went to a class and signed up for the class. And after three weeks, once a week, I went up to the professor and I said, you consult because I got to learn it faster than learning it once a week. I'm not, I'm just too damn slow. And I got specific questions that the rest of the audience may not be interested in, but I'm sure interested. And so he said, I've never done it, but I'd love to. So I hired him and he, Glenn Strasberg, and he became sort of the guru of uh, consulting in their industry. He's passed away now, but he became sort of, he learned on us and we learned on him. And and then he went around and talked to other architects and helped them out. So he was a fine guy and really helped us. And and, uh, and I really always realized that if, because I was dealing with really top-notch clients. These were experienced clients, people like Goldman Sachs or Gerald Hines or the Bank of America or first the Pennzoil. These are corporate leaders. And I, in those days, I would sit with the chairman of the board. Here I'm a 30, 32-year-old kid. Right. And sit with the chairman of the board and of Bank of America to help plan their spaces and do their mm-hmm. projects. It wasn't some real estate because the real estate departments in those days didn't really exist. Uh-huh. And the facilities managers didn't really exist. They had people in the accounting department with grid paper doing layouts and telling stuff. So that whole part of the industry evolved, and so I evolved with it. And was made, people have talked to me about you know, coming, really creating the interior architecture business, and maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but mm-hmm. I was involved in the middle of it. And, but, I, you know, I, I, and my staff and our staff um, would always say, when are we going to do real architecture? Well, I kept saying, you're designing space for people that they're going to use, not just look at, but actually physically use, which is just the most important space that we're going to do. It's more but impactful it, than the skin uh, of the building is. And it's And so I've always felt that the interior was as important as the outside and how it works or the land planning or any whatever else we're working on uh-huh. or the furniture that we select and or design even. So um, I've never thought it was any other way and, and I just am um, a pretty organized person and I'm comfortable in uh, trying to grow something. I found it fascinating and I surrounded my, I always believe in hiring people that are smarter than I am. and. And I certainly was good at that. That's not that hard. But I found people that were really good designing and getting drawings done and getting buildings built. And so I didn't have to worry about that. And we all teamed in. And and uh, I, everybody was a marketer. We don't have a marketing department. And, mm-hmm. and we all, we're all responsible for marketing. And that really means taking good care of our clients. And now today we have, I think this year we had 2,600 clients. Uh-huh. on 10,000 projects. I mean, it's a big business. Big and business. people have, always ask me, how do you control it? And the answer is very simple. You don't. You hire great people, you give them a support system, and you let them do great work. Mm-hmm. And we have enough respect for each other that we don't let each other down. And so if I have a client, let's say Bank of America, and um, 
and then my client, and I'm working with them, and then they need something in Denver. Well, the Denver office should probably do it, and so the people who will hear will tell them these are the standards, these are the things, but this is what needs to be done. They'll put their best people on because they don't want to let the people in the San Francisco office down that, that that's what should be done. And so we have this team effort of mm-hmm. all the projects we work on that it's it's not about I and me, it's about we and us. And, and so most of the designers in the world is about them. In our firm, that isn't the point. It's about us, our clients. That's what's important. So, so let's talk about that from two different perspectives. One, I'm just curious about you. So when you think about you and what's given you the pleasure during your career, how much of that is design and architecture in your head and what you bring to the table that way? How much is client relationships and sales? And how much is building a company? Because they're, they're three different Well, I things. think um, I like all three and I enjoy all three. I probably have enjoyed the client relationships more than anything. Uh-huh. I mean, I've, I'll give you a simple story. I call one of my clients who's a president of PNC Bank. Uh-huh. And uh, I said to Jim, before I die, I'd love to play a golf at Augusta. And Jim said, well, gee, I'm playing with Arnold on Tuesday. Would you like to play Tuesday and Wednesday with us? Now, then Arnold happened to be Arnold Palmer. He, he's the right golf the, guy. The, the, the real Arnold Palmer. And I rode in a golf cart for two days because he didn't want to walk, and I've got a bad leg. And so, and I drank vodka, and I drank wine, and slept in the same butler cabin with him. And those relationships with clients I have in hundreds and hundreds of clients that I've met all over the, for years and years. A man was just in my office. He said, I met you 13 years ago, and we tried to do a project. It didn't happen. I'm glad to be back. That's the, I love that relationship. I love the business. I, I'm not, I, I truly believe that we, as a firm, provide great value to our clients. And so they make money, and we make money, too. And we're not embarrassed about that. Yeah. I live, my kids go to college. I've got 11 grandchildren I'm putting through college. They all have trust funds. I'm taking good care of them. And I, uh, and, but it's never been about me. It's been about the firm. And so I love the firm, and I love what it's done for me. That's, I don't need to come to work every day, but I do because uh-huh. um, I, I love it. But I, I still a pretty good critic and a pretty good eye, and so when somebody shows me something, I usually can make it better or good. help it. And so I still enjoy the whole process. Uh-huh. And how do you move in a firm from a group of – in my world, we call them producers or a group of architects or star architects mm-hmm. and have that kind of that ego-driven culture. And how do you transform that into a corporate culture? Well, you never let it become a star tech-driven culture. There is the recognition and reward is not just for the designer in this firm. It's for everybody, including the receptionist and the people in the accounting department. It's a whole team of people that makes a successful club. I get a, people stop in my office, clients, and just say, I just want to poke my head in and tell you how much I appreciate work, the chance to work with against their people. They're terrific. And mm-hmm. I get that over and over again. Not They love the design, but they love the process of working. Our people are very nice people. We're not, it's not about us. It's not, it isn't my building. It's the client's building. It isn't, our, it might, it isn't my reputation ruined or made because... Architect, another architect will see something and think, well, I would have done it better than that. 
Mm-hmm. That is, he doesn't know the client. He doesn't know the problem, budget, the site. I do. And we did the best we could in that project, that client, that site at that time. And so I'm not hung up on that everything has to be a cover of an architectural magazine. We do 10,000 projects a year. Maybe 100 get on the cover of a magazine. That's pretty good. Most firms That's have really one, one you know, cover. And so we... We win 500 design awards a year. I mean, it's ridiculous. But <laughs> that isn't what we call winning. We call winning a client that picks up the phone and we have master agreements with top 500 companies in this country and the world are our clients. And, and uh, if you go out, you can. there's an annual focus, uh, annual report that, and focus group in the lobby that's, um, that lists all of our clients. <laughs> you just, <clears throat> you'll see top 10 law firms they're all there, all there. I, all i've this. seen it and been in spaces oh, you've I mean, and these are all, we have master agreements with they just pick up the phone and say we need a place in timbuktu go take care of it uh-huh. and that's our relationship so and well, let me ask a question i'm, I'm going to ask ricky some questions about the same the same stuff but how do you with that size and scale how does it not revert to average so that's kind of th- thought number one. And let me ask a second question, too. And then the second question is, because you started as an interior firm, there's probably less ego around interior than exterior design. I don't design. think so. No? Okay. So I'm thinking that those roots make it easier to have that, the approach that you're There's a little more because people see it, drive by and see an exterior, and they may never get in to see the interior. But they all have and the ego. exterior may be beautiful, and the building could suck. Yeah, <laughs> it, it often there. is. And uh, <laughs> no, the and I'll let Ricky answer that. But the way we get is we hire really good people, and and there's a friendly rivalry. There's excellence is built into everything that we do, uh-huh. and we really are. We really make sure that nothing goes out the door unless people, the senior people, have have kind of blessed it and said. But it's it, it. They make their own deals. Everybody's making deals around here, and they're all because we know each other. We respect each other. We trust. Trust is a very big word in this business. And Huge. Most people, they don't trust their partners. They don't. I mean, I, I was with one of my good friends and senior partner, and one of the very largest architectural firms in the country. And I think they have twelve partners. We have two hundred and eighty. But they have twelve. And I was saying, well, we just had a. Um, partners meeting and everybody brought their wives and we spent three days together down in the desert. And he said, well, that's, I don't think we've ever had dinner together as a partnership. And we're a family. We're, this place is a very unique family. Mm-hmm. And, and you, would, it, you think of how do you treat your brother or your sister, that's how we expect be, to treat each other. I think of this a lot because I'm in a services business and we're tiny we're 12 people we're like your firm at the beginning and and we have limits to growth because of intellectual capital and what we do um and i think of different global firms particularly in the real estate business our sponsor is jll i'm sure jll and their competitors where we know them so well it's i mean it's like they're part of the firm right but those firms also have global partner meetings and it's always the biggest salespeople who do that and no, it's a different dynamic around what constitutes success and then how successful people work together well, in that me, environment. Let me just give yours. you one answer and then talk to Ricky about that. Success for designers 
and people in our industry is not how big a pile of chips you have in front of you. Mm -hmm. Success is a happy client in a successful project. And that's the whole thing. If you're a broker, success is how I got a bigger pile of chips in front of me than you have in front of you. That's bro stockbrokers, insurance salesmen, all sorts of people in direct sales like that. Right. It's how big is my pile of chips? And that's winning. Mm -hmm. That isn't what our people. Winning is have a great, happy client who picks up the phone and calls me for the next project. Again and again. Over and over and over. So we actually had a party about a year ago now um, that Bank of America has been our client for 50 years, and we have they have been our banker for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we had they, they had quite secretly had trophies made. And if you go out there, it's on the front desk, there's a trophy, one of the trophies, a square obelisk that, um, that is a memento to celebrate that. And they have it in their sort of super conference room in, in the Bay of Air building. And, and because we've done things together, that we know each other, there are probably 10 offices in Gensler today working on a Bank of America assignment. Some right. very little, some just getting an ATM machine to be ADA compliance, and some are building, you know, huge buildings for them. So it, it, we're in the service business. We're not in the Deal design, business. design. I mean, it's like we don't do, some countries we have to, but we don't do comp design competitions. Because I don't think that gives you the proper interaction with a client and the, cl and the site and the community and the, 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 the building departments and things that you need to get a great project. Great projects take a lot of massaging in today's world. They're damn complicated. And, and no one person anymore can do a building. I don't care, the, practically an outhouse, you need a team. Um, and, and it's just complicated. Um, to get all the approvals and the dealing with the codes and dealing with the contractors and all the other things. So, We've got to work together. In most firms, it's all about me. I want my name on it. I, they're, you know, they're an amalgamation of a bunch of people with a support staff that takes care of them rather than mm -hmm. thinking it's for that client. And so, you know, we get probably one or two a week where a client will call and say, we tried somebody else. We made a mistake. Can we come back? Will you take us back? Right. And unless they've been real jerks. <laughs> there have been a few that we said, I don't think we fit very well. We take them back. We talk about it in search because we talk about it's often the journey and not the product because it's how you work together well, to the, come up with the solutions, I mean, not I, just I, the end I result. I have a, a, a demonstration, a thing that I talk a lot about, which is stretching a rubber band. And, and if you stretch it too far because you want to do something the client isn't really ready to do, if you stretch it too far, the rubber band breaks and you lose everything. Mm -hmm. But if you stretch it just to resistance and a little more, it won't break, and it also won't go back to where it was. It's already been stretched a little bit. So the next time they call you, you stretch it a little further, and then stretch it a little further, and then stretch it a little further over two or three times, and then you become their trusted advisor. And they don't have to question you. They know you're gonna do a responsible, responsive solution that meets their needs, budget, schedule, quality. And every project isn't, or should be, on the cover of a magazine. There's plenty of good projects. People say to me all the time, why do you waste your time doing 3,000 Gap stores? Well, somebody's got to draw them, and it might as well be us, because we learn about them. Every store is custom tailored to that particular site. There's a whole lot of very strict standards. 
but somebody's going to do it. Young people come in, they get a chance to do it, they get a project, they get start on it on Monday, and by Friday they're pretty much done with it. I mean, it's a wonderful training ground. And so we do, you know, we General Motors had us touch 4,000 dealerships, all the dealerships in the United States, General Motors, in two years. Mm-hmm. We went to 2,000 dealerships each year for two years. And we went to every one of them and said, if you do this, this, and this, General Motors will give you this amount of money. If you do this, 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 and this, they give you a little more money. This, 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 and this, and this, and then what? Right. you get even more. So which one do you, way do you want to go? And we'd have a, people with iPads that do a little sketch and say, this is, here it is, and we can draw it, or a local architect can take it and finish it. And then we monitored what they did, and we covered every one of their dealerships in the United States. That's a great story, because what you know when you go into a car dealer, or when you go to an Apple store, or you go to a grocery store, or you go into an office building, there's that feeling of it makes, it lifts my heart up versus it brings my whole body down. And bad design brings your whole body down. Uh, I, I won't go into the details, but we did the first hundred Apple stores, and the same thing. Steve kept saying, I want this, and I want this, and it's the brightest guy I ever met, bar none. And I've met some really, really bright people, but right. but um, he's tough. I mean, he, we'd build a whole store in one week, build it physically in a warehouse. He'd just rip it to shreds, take this piece of crap out of here, start over again. And we did it for six months until we got it. And I kept saying, you can't afford this store. What did I know that he, mm-hmm. I thought he had just a, a laptop and a, and, a, and a computer and one was a pro and one was a, for the average Joe and he didn't tell us about iPads and I, all these other things and iPhones and things that they had. He and didn't know? He, yeah. he probably didn't know either but he was confident because I kept saying, what are you going to sell in this damn store when we get through? And, but he kept adding the quality and adding this and adding that, and everything had to be perfect. I mean, he, he was a perfectionist. So let's, uh, let, let's dive into that one, because, of course, we all understand what an, I, an Apple store does and feels like. And you, together with your client, invented a new retail experience. And it probably was massively collaborative, or he was beating you on the head, oh. and iterative, and something that when you got to the end, you couldn't have imagined at the beginning of the process. Very much so. It was an amazing experience, but it wasn't fun, and it wasn't pretty, and it wasn't easy. But um, I'm obviously very honored to have done it and did a lot of work with him. I mean, started with him when they had a couple hundred people. I gave a talk at a conference. He was a speaker at a conference. And I, right. he said, come see me. I got, I'm starting this company called Apple. And I need to have some office layouts done. We did a lot of work for him. That's the real deal. That's how one's practice and work evolves. I hope that you're enjoying our conversation with Art and Ricky. We're going to hear from Carlos Serra, a managing director with our sponsor, JLL. He runs the firm's project and development services business in the Southwest. Carlos, we've been hearing a lot about the changing design needs that clients constantly demand. What changes are you seeing? Over the years, we've seen a lot of stakeholders change. And what I mean by that is a lot of the corporate real estate executives were at the forefront of leading those design changes. What we have now is the stakeholders behind them. So basically, the actual end user groups are really dictating what type of design they're looking for. And you can see a lot of this shift in the market with just the 
co-working companies, right, that have become more prevalent in 2018. So I think between 2018 and the next two or three years, we're going to see a big change from uh, more collaborative spaces that people are looking for. Um, we've also seen a little bit of a backlash from fully open office spaces. And this has become more in the news where people are looking at having some enclosed offices as well. But I think ultimately, we're just seeing more stakeholders uh, become vocal about what changes they're looking for. So let's let's move over to Ricky for a moment. And Ricky, I'm curious of your story and how you got to this firm and then why you chose this firm. I was initially kind of intimidated, especially by the kind of scale, right, being the largest um, right. kind of firm, um, design firm in the world. And there was a little part of me that was a little bit skeptical at first. And, you know, we just talked about all the collaboration, all these other things. Um, but... You know, I was really trying to figure out, like, how do those elements of, like, culture and consistency and individuality all come together? Um, And I thought to myself, you know, will my ideas and strategies kind of get lost, you know, Mm -hmm. within there? um, Or will they thrive within this context? And as I became a lot more familiar uh, with my colleagues, um, both kind of, you know, in different regions and kind of globally, if I realized what art has created as a foundation for this place of practice. For me, that was like a platform where we can seek design solutions um, through the culture of curiosity, innovation, um, efficiency, and that all of those things can be achieved um, through kind of natural collaboration. And that's what got me really, really kind of excited um, in how they work here. So talk about what you do here, just for a moment, so we get a perspective on it and maybe give an example of examples of a couple of projects and it'll make it real for me and make it real for our listeners. You know, we're, we're working on a, a diverse range of projects. Uh-huh. And I think one great example that we can use um, that kind of speaks to what we do in our process is this project um, um, called the Cisco Guangzhou Smart City uh-huh. Master Plan. And it's in Guangzhou in China. And it's really about um, kind of welcoming um, this new age of how we work, live, and play, and learn. And what's, what's really exciting about this project is that it, it begins to create um, um, this platform for innovation, and it enables um, kind of people to achieve their maximum potential. And so it's, it's what, do you, what, what, do you, what do you need to be able to create that kind of environment? As I think Art mentioned before, is that you know when we think about um, kind of creating value. It's not just about the densities. It's not just about the use. It's not just about the performance. Right. But it's really about how do you create uh, value for our clients and how do you create that value and experience for the people that are going to um, experience um, that space or that project. Uh-huh. And that could be at the scale of an office suite, the scale of a building, the scale of a new city being built. Definitely. It works across all the different scales. Mm-hmm. And what's great about um, our strategies practice is that we can jump from the small and go to the big. And, and how do you guys think about projects that have been done, particularly large-scale projects that have been done, that 20 years later you look at it and go, oh, who, who, who built that? Who designed that? How did that get let done? Well, I had an unusual experience in college where um, Brasilia, was the site was being identified. They, we, we had stereotypic little things, those little glasses with 
two pictures and you kind of got 3D look and they photographed, flew over Brasilia and they wanted it inland someplace and we picked the site at Cornell and where I was at the time and then I remember working on the project and uh, they felt that they needed to have these, you know, civic buildings that were really, Oscar Niemeyer unique shaped buildings that made a difference and they looked great in the photography. The problem was they forgot about anything else like housing and retail and, and they just did the government buildings right. and, and never put the thing together and the place is a disaster. So it, you know, it just, it has never come together after 50 years because they, they, they worked on one piece of it and made it a, a unique architectural statement, but they didn't ever bring in all the elements that go into making a city a city. Right. And it's the people that are there. It's the activities that they do. It's not just the looking of the building, uh, look of the buildings. It's it's a lot more than that. So, um, I think that's the fun of of the design world. Is that there's many things that are important, but there. And I, I said something earlier that I really want to emphasize again. You know, every building doesn't have to be a look at me building. There's a there's a great need for background things. And that doesn't mean you just stamp them out and they all look the same because that's dreadful. But, you know, they, they can have the same scale and the same texture and the same kind of qualities and they go as a neighborhood and, and people relate to those scales. And you have to break them down into various scales for various activities and there can be a, a, a place of retail and we're, we're seeing the whole breakdown of, of retail centers. We went right. through these whole shopping centers and closed closed malls, and then we went to open malls. We went to open malls first, then closed malls, and went to open malls. Now we're going away from malls altogether. So the, the things evolve, and and one of the things that always I laugh at him at the point where I laugh at it is, you know, don't ever touch my building. I I'm, I was with a woman last this weekend, whose husband was a very prominent architect in Sydney, Australia. And he had a contract that said that nobody could touch his buildings unless it was approved by his office, even when he's dead. And so she's running the office and has to approve every little line and anything that changes a building that he built. He built a lot of buildings. And she has a staff of about six people that just approve things. Or what For do, this dead guy. Right. So I, I've had three or four buildings torn down. I've actually torn down my own building. and right. did. did in this, this central terminal building in San Francisco, we so I mean I don't you know my projects I, I I've always said if, if if I had the magic wand and could make every building disappear after 30 years I'd do it including all of our own because I think that you know I love older things and maybe you save a few of them but there's a lot of awful buildings that because they're old people save and they should have been torn down a long time ago anyway but more importantly. We, the reason we keep expanding and expanding and expanding cities instead of going vertical more and right. more density is because people, well, th that building's been standing there for 40 years, and so I guess we got to rehab it and adaptive reuse or God knows what. And that, some of them are worth doing, sometimes, and, 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 and some not. of them are not. And yet we have this fear of tearing anything down. And, and, and you know, the redevelopment agency situation where they did go and wipe out whole neighborhoods and you know, dislocate a lot of people. That era was not never good. Worked. It never worked. And so there's a balance of, of, of development that's yeah. important. It's, it's interesting, though, because the cost of getting it right is different between 
permanent and impermanent things. So interior design may be relatively impermanent because it could change every five years. And But if you're doing, like Ricky, what you talked about, the fabric of a city that's going to be developed, now you're playing on a canvas of a $2 billion canvas versus a Let me give you an million example. Let me canvas. give you an example. There's a, there's a big courthouse in Honolulu that's a mess. It's just a mess. And it was done in the brutalist concrete world right. of... And it, Paul Rudolph could have done it, but he didn't. So it wasn't Rudolph. I, I had great respect for him in his small project. I couldn't stand it, his brutalist stuff. But anyway, we were asked to come in and make it better and fix it. And we had to keep people in the building because they didn't have any place to move them. So we did it in phases. And it was a terrible building. And we could have torn the whole building down and rebuilt it for $400 a foot. And we were spending six, seven hundred dollars a foot to make it okay, right? Because we couldn't tear it down. It was over fifty years old. It was historic, and even though it's a bad building, and and that's stupid. And we do a lot of stupid things like that because we get sentimental. People are very hung up. I'll use the word on what they know. I mean, one thing is that Steve Jobs never did was have focus groups because he said they don't know what I know can be created mm -hmm. and so they can't tell me things that because they have no vision they have no knowledge of it where I have a sense of knowledge that they will never get of what I can do and what can be created and so it's a real fine line balance between pushing people and pushing things to a point and and creating new things or staying where it is and mm -hmm. gee, I love San Francisco so I love the old buildings. so I, why do we have to have all these new buildings as somebody said to me the other day, they said, how do you like the Salesforce Tower? Now, Cesar Pelli's a very good friend of mine and a great architect, and I like it okay. But I said, you ought to go back and remember when Transamerica Pyramid was built. Everybody in this town hated they it. hated it. Hated it. It's it was, it's a, it became all of a sudden the symbol of San Francisco. And if you ask anybody, of course, that's San Francisco. I know if I see the Transamerica Tower. Now, I'm telling you, Salesforce Tower in five years or 10 years will be the symbol of San Francisco, because it's the biggest and the tallest, and, the, and, and people all of a sudden like it. But right now, they have a lot of questions, and it's not all the designer's fault. It's, it's a lot of things. Absolutely true. So a couple more questions. So you guys are on the front line of a lot of things, and we have trends that are colliding. The trend of hugely changing preferences in places that they hadn't changed for a long time, particularly in office buildings, right? And in retail, it's changed. And then we have, in, uh, we have the IoT. We have the Internet of Things and technology changing at a massively rapid rate. And we have global warming and sea, sea level rise, so resiliency issues. How do you plan and design and advise well, that, that, in the middle me, of all those things changing at the same time? Well, you, you make an assumption that I think is the one that gets you into trouble and that everything lasts forever. And there's a... Uh, Bob Propes, who designed the first open office system for Herman Miller 50-plus years ago, drew a chart that I've never forgotten, and it's talk about the rate of change. And your great-grandfather, or great, his father, did about the same thing as my great-grandfather, and my great-grandfather did as, uh, the same as his father did, and my father did about the same as my grandfather. But right. now, man, it is changing, and my kids are not doing what I'm doing at all. And my grandchildren are not even close to what I'm doing because the rate of change is so rapid. 
So we've lived in a, the people of my age have lived through an area of gradual change and at the end of our careers, seeing a beginnings of rapid change. In the future, change will be everything. And so therefore, building buildings that last forever, one of the things that I, I do, we do college work and secondary school work, and, and they try to build them for 100 years because they've always built them for 100 years. The, the, the teaching will not be even the same 20 years from now. The process of teaching is changing. It isn't 30 kids in a classroom with a teacher and a chalkboard. Right. That is gone, and it's technology, it's the way education, it's the, the, the way they teach. Everything is changing. So we have to now really build frameworks which are adaptable and modifiable. And in the inside, that's going to be more modifiable than the outside. But they, they've all got to be changeable because mm -hmm. the world is changing and people uh -huh. have to recognize that. So, Ricky, you're in your career, over your next 40 years, you'll be addressing a lot of these issues. So any comments on that? Um, definitely. You know, when we talk about um, kind of master plans and, uh -huh. um, and kind of urban fabric, um, you know, there's sort of permanence um, to the choices that get made. Yeah. Right when those things get implemented, and uh, you know, I think in recent years, um, urbanization and resiliency have become perhaps the most significant influencers of real estate. So, you know, both of those those um, items are interrelated, and they kind of play off of each other right. nowadays. And it's really important that um, you know you can't think about urbanization uh, without thinking about the strategies for resilience. And so that the flexibility in that framework, as Art mentioned, you know, the, the adaptability is, is vital in, in making sure that our cities stay uh, relevant and current. Absolutely true. So last question, Art, if you're giving advice, I ask this to all of my guests, if you're giving advice to a young person entering the real estate industry, not necessarily architecture world, what's your advice to them? Get a good education and a broad education. Um, it always drives me crazy to see architects standing and talking to architects and designers talking to designers and things. Not that you shouldn't have friends in your field, of, but reach out because the broad, the breadth of knowledge that you're going to need to be a really contributor in the future society will be very broad and, and you'll have need a background in a lot of types of areas that you are not just one little area. And, and the idea that I'm a designer and I just, design is so broad, that word is, it isn't just the visual implications of what you're doing, it's the functional implications. It's the interrelationship with other parts of the world and the other parts of the community. So broaden yourself and then the second thing is learn how to speak in public. Um, most of the people in design keep pointing and looking at the wall and you know, the, the client is behind them and they're pointing at something on the wall and don't have a clue whether the client's reacting to it or not. Yeah. So how, learn how to stand in front of a group and tell, tell a story. It's interesting. If there's been a theme to our conversation, and what I really learned talking to you today is design is less about that thing and it's more about that process. And that process means you need to be interdisciplinary and able to work with others within your firm and then also with the clients who are trying to make something happen. So if you, Ricky, had advice for someone getting into the business, what would that be? There's a saying in sort of my family, and it's carried on along generations, and it's really helped me 
uh, with both my life and my career. And that is, um, you know, you may not always be able to solve all the issues, uh, but always try to find a way to leave things better than you found them. Really important in this business. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you once again. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate both of you. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients, whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices.